Hello, Church on the Street. This is Pat. Turns out we had some technical problems with the sound system at the high school this Sunday and weren't able to capture the message. So it feels a little weird, but I'm going to try and deliver it again here into our little recorder so that we can post it on the website and you can listen to it. It would be good if you want to also pull up the notes. They're on the website as well under message notes. So you can pull those up and you can follow right along. We're going to start... Uh, today with a review of last week. We're talking about the promise of the Father, which is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So let's just go over the first four questions that we dealt with last week, and then we'll go on and deal with questions five and six this week. First question, do I need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit to be saved? The answer to that question is no, you don't. When you are saved, when you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are saved, and at that point of salvation, you receive the Holy Spirit. That's a different instance than what we're talking about today, which leads us into question number two, is baptism in the Holy Spirit and receiving the Holy Spirit when I become a Christian the same? The answer to that is no, it's not. There are two different instances, and maybe even more instances, if you see in the Bible, that it talks about the uh, early disciples and apostles being continually filled with the Holy Spirit. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not the same as receiving the Holy Spirit when you're saved. Uh, we talked a little bit about the two scriptures last week of the woman at the well and the other instance where Jesus talks about um, living water. One being with the woman at the well that would lead unto eternal life and the other that would be uh, rivers of living water flowing from your innermost places. And it kind of appears that that's um, descriptive of the two different instances, the first being for you, the Holy Spirit indwelling you for the purpose of you being transformed, being renewed in your mind uh, more and more into the likeness of Christ. The second then being um, the Holy Spirit flowing out of you uh, as a minister to be able to be the witness of Jesus in power. So question, is it the same? It is not. There are two different instances. Third, who is the baptism of the Holy Spirit for? And scripture teaches us that it's for every Christian. And then the fourth question from last week, is it important that I be baptized in the Holy Spirit and why? Yes, it is very important that you be baptized in the Holy Spirit. This is um, a gift from God. It is a tool and he says specifically to the disciples, and we'll read the scripture in a minute, that they should uh, wait, that they would receive this uh, promise of the Father that would give them power to be his witness. So uh, it's a big job if we read the great commissions that Jesus has uh, given us to do, and we certainly don't want to have to try to do that with one hand tied behind our back. So absolutely it's important. The reason it's important is because he told the early disciples that they needed to have that promise of the Father. That's no different than us, and we have a job to do, and we want to access everything that we have from heaven to be able to be effective in doing that job. So that's questions one through four, and now let's try to answer questions number five and six, those being uh, how do I receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit, and then number six, how do I know if I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Before we go on to those two, let me just read a couple little pieces of scripture to tie last week and this week together and to set a backdrop for you um, as we proceed. So at the end of Luke's gospel, 
chapter 24, verse 49. This is just prior to Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father in heaven. So these are literally, in Luke's gospel, the last words that he would have spoken to the disciples before he actually um, was ascended up to the right hand of the Father. It says, And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus is the very last thing he says to them is that they need to go back into the city and they need to wait for this promise of the Father. If you think about it, Jesus has just spent the last three years of his life with these people, and this is the last words he's going to speak to them. So you have to know that it's a very important uh, message from Jesus to the disciples that they would receive this promise of the Father. So then if you fast forward into chapter 1 of Luke, or excuse me, chapter 1 of Acts, which was also written by Luke, you see um, Jesus say in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. So Jesus gives us a little idea of what the promise of the Father is. It's the Holy Spirit coming upon you, and also what the purpose of it would be that we would be his witnesses. So with that as a backdrop, there's five different places in the book of Acts that describe different people receiving this promise of the Father, this baptism in the Holy Spirit. And we'll go through each one of them individually. It would be a really great idea for you to also review this scripture in your own devotion time. Read it, ponder it, ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you. If you've been already baptized in the Holy Spirit, then continually look for that um, refilling of the Holy Spirit. If you've not been baptized in the Holy Spirit yet, then that would be a great opportunity for you to ask that the Father would baptize you and that you could have that power to be his witness. So first we look at the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. This is specifically what Jesus had spoken of when he was about to ascend to the right hand of the Father, when he told them to go back to the city and wait. So they've been waiting. Uh, Pentecost happens 50 days after um, the Passover. Jesus' uh, death and resurrection happened at the Passover, so it's roughly about 50 days from when Jesus was hung on the cross. Um, They're waiting now for this promise. They don't even know what it is. They're not exactly sure what to expect, I'm sure. And then all of a sudden, they're in the room. It says 120 people uh, together. They were all of one accord, and pow, the Holy Spirit just drops on them like a bomb. It, It says that he came with the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and the sound of this wind had to be so... Um, powerful that it drew drew other people from around. Understand that during Pentecost you would have people that would make a vigil to Jerusalem for Pentecost and you'd have these people from all the surrounding areas that um, had come into Jerusalem and they hear this sound and they come to where the sound is emanating from which happens to be the place where the 120 uh, have been waiting and praying for the promise of the Father to show up. And scripture says that um, the people that had been waiting, it doesn't say specifically whether it was just the apostles or all of the 120. My suspicion is it was all of the 120. 
began to speak in other tongues. It says that um, they could literally see uh, what looked like tongues of fire would descend upon each one of these people as they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. So you can see these things that they described as tongues of fire descending on each one of them. And as they descend on them, they begin to speak in other tongues. Uh, it doesn't say specifically if they are earthly languages or not, but it does say that the people that were there and hearing them heard in their own language. Remember, they've come from all these different places around, and uh, many of them don't speak Hebrew. So it might be like if an American that spoke only English was to be in a place where all of the hearers were only able to speak German or French or Czech or Russian or Japanese or Chinese, and those hearers were actually hearing the, the American person who only spoke English in their native tongue. So the Japanese guy is hearing Japanese, the German is hearing German, and so on. Um, it may have been that they were actually speaking in those other tongues, but the specific way the scripture describes it is that they heard in their own tongue. So they may have been speaking in a heavenly language, but the, the anointing was on the hearers as well to hear in their own language. doesn't say for sure, but that's the way it reads. So the very first time uh, that the Holy Spirit descends in this way, these guys are baptized in the Holy Spirit. They speak in other tongues. It's powerful and mighty, uh, so much so that some of the people even believed that they were drunk. And if you continue to read on the scriptures, you'll hear uh, in Peter's very first sermon that he explains that, no, they're not drunk as you suppose, because it was only the, I think it was 9 o'clock in the morning when it happened. And the um, thing that you're seeing, this is Peter now, is that which was prophesied in the, in the book of Joel, and um, if you read the prophecy, it's very interesting how it parallels exactly what happened. So he says, it's not what you think. They're not drunk. And this is the fulfillment of this prophecy uh, that was prophesied however many years ago by the prophet Joel. So amazing, powerful. It was so powerful that uh, 3,000 people came to the Lord that day. Many of them con convicted in their hearts were Jews that participated in the actual persecution of the Lord Jesus. So it was an amazing, powerful thing. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, that they would then be his witness. And maybe the first example of that witness with power is Peter as he preaches this sermon to these 3,000 that actually become believers in Christ at that point in time. The second instance of people being baptized in the Holy Spirit is when Philip, one of the disciples, was down in Samaria and he was preaching the gospel to the people in this area and it were had gotten back to the apostles in Jerusalem that the um, people in Samaria had received the word of the Lord so Peter and John then traveled down to Samaria to see specifically whether or not uh, the Samaritan people had, or the people that are in the, the city of Samaria, I believe it is the city in this case, had actually been baptized in the Holy Spirit. It turns out that they hadn't. They uh, were believers based upon Philip's message. They received Jesus as Lord and Savior. They had been water baptized. And then John and Peter laid hands on them that they would receive the Holy Spirit, and they did. Interestingly, there was evidence again of them receiving the Holy Spirit because there in Samaria was this 
a person named Simon who was called the power of God because he was able to do these amazing um, magic. And even Simon was so amazed. He actually received Christ as Lord. He was baptized. And it says when he saw that the people received the Holy Spirit, he actually offered money to the apostles so that they could give him the power to cause other people to be able to receive the Holy Spirit in the way that he saw that. So um, we'll talk a little bit later about how do I know if I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And in this particular case, there was no evidence of tongues being spoken, but there was some uh, very evident thing that happened because he actually wanted to be able to do this. So that's number two. First is the day of Pentecost. Number two is Philip in Samaria where the apostles come down, actually lay hands on the people, and they receive the Holy Spirit. The third is Saul, who ultimately became the Apostle Paul, who wrote nearly half of the New Testament books of the Bible. And Saul had had this powerful experience on the road to Damascus where the Lord Jesus met him on the road and and said, Saul, Saul, you know, why are you persecuting me and he didn't know who he was and Jesus explained to him that he was Jesus who you persecute and Saul literally on the road had a face-up experience with Jesus that caused him to become a believer. He was then taken back to the city and uh, the Lord spoke to a man by the name of Ananias and said, Ananias, I want you to go and meet this guy Saul and I want you to pray for him that the scales will fall from his eyes because Saul was literally blinded by his experience with Jesus on the road and also that he would receive the Holy Spirit. And and Ananias said, hey, you know, this guy Saul, he's like one of the worst guys around. He hates us. He's the, the biggest persecutor of the church. And Jesus said to him, or the Holy Spirit said to him, you know, go and do this. He needs to understand how he's going to have to um, suffer for my name. And so Ananias goes he meets Saul, he lays his hands on Saul, and the scales that were blinding, they said like scales had fallen off his eyes. So Saul recovered his sight. He was also baptized in the Holy Spirit. And there is no record of any specific um, evidence that, that the Bible shares with us at that instance, but immediately it speaks to Saul then... Um, going out and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus to all these people who knew him as the one who uh, thought it was the greatest heresy in the world that caused him to persecute all these people. So um, where Jesus had said, you'll become my witness, certainly it didn't take long for Saul to become his witness. As soon as he was baptized in the Holy Spirit, he immediately went out and began to start to preach Jesus Christ. So that's number three. Number four is really cool. This one is the house of Cornelius. Cornelius was a uh, centurion in the Roman army, um, a, a big authority. He had numerous soldiers under his command, but it appears that he was a Gentile Jew, that he had converted to Judaism uh, when he was had come down into that area to do his job as a centurion, that he had believed... Um, in the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and had been converted to Judaism, but was not a Christian. Cornelius had um, a visitation from an angel who told him that he should send some people to this particular town 
uh, Jopa or Jop, I'm not sure how it's pronounced exactly, and go get this person named Peter and have him brought to Ananias. So he did. You know, when an angel comes and shows himself and tells you to do something, you do it. And so he had sent some people over to, to this town. At the same time, the Lord was giving Peter a vision of like these sheets falling down with these unclean animals and telling Peter in the vision to eat the unclean animals. And Peter says, well, you know, I would never eat anything unclean. Nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. But God said to him, don't call anything unclean, which, you know, I've made for you. And he was starting this process of teaching Peter that with the example of foods that would have been considered unclean in the past, that in this new covenant that he has, that they wouldn't be considered unclean, ultimately leading him to the place to learn that salvation in the name of Jesus Christ was not only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile, that if anyone should believe on the name of Jesus Christ, that they would be saved, whether they were Jew or Gentile. So um, he is then told by the Holy Spirit that somebody's coming to meet him and that, that he's to go with them back to this place, this house of Cornelius, and um, you know he does what he's told. The people show up. Peter says, hey, I was expecting you. Peter and a group of um, other Christian Jews follow these representatives of Cornelius back to his house, neither of them really understanding exactly Cornelius, why Peter was to come, or Peter understanding why he was sent. So Peter gets there, and he starts explaining to them the gospel. And as he's sharing with the people of the house of Cornelius the gospel of Jesus Christ, Literally, um, during that process, Cornelius and his family, whomever else was there, must have believed in Jesus and come to um, the come into the faith. Because as Peter is describing the gospel, Cornelius and the people of his house are literally baptized in the Holy Spirit as Peter's speaking, and. Um, the Bible says that they knew that he was baptized in the Holy Spirit, that God had also given his spirit to the Gentile like they, like he did at the day of Pentecost when Peter and the rest of them received that baptism of the Holy Spirit because they immediately began just on the fly speaking in other tongues. So that one was kind of cool. Um, the theologians kind of assume that the process happened that way because if Peter, being a Jew, not being conscious necessarily that um, salvation through Jesus was available to anybody but Jews, if he had preached the gospel and left without having seen this baptism happen, then um, he might not have connected the dots to understand that it was also for the Gentile, not just for the Jew. So, uh immediately upon seeing that they received the Holy Spirit, the evidence appears to have been that they spoke in other tongues. Uh, he commanded that they all be baptized, and, and off they went. And if you read a little bit further uh, in that passage of Scripture, you see Peter going back to Jerusalem and sharing with the rest of the apostles. And, and they all believed that the speaking in other tongues was the evidence that Cornelius and his house had been baptized in the Holy Spirit, had received the promise of the Father, and that was how they became aware that um, salvation through Jesus Christ was for all people, not just for the Jews. 
And then the last instance that's recorded in the book of Acts is the Apostle Paul. Saul now becomes the Apostle Paul. He goes on his missionary journeys. At this particular instance, he is passing through Ephesus. And he comes upon these people that the Bible describes as disciples. Because he calls them disciples, we know that they were already believers. We know that they'd been saved. And uh, Paul asks them, have you received the Holy Spirit? And their response is, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Paul asks them then, into what have you been baptized? And their answer is, the baptism of John. So a baptism of repentance. And um, so... These guys, uh, Paul lays his hands on them. They immediately begin to speak in other tongues and prophesy, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Um, and then were baptized after the fact, water baptized after the fact. So those are the five instances that we can see biblically for baptism in the Holy Spirit. And they are uh, in Acts chapter 2 is the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 8. Uh, is Philip in Samaria. Chapter 9 is Saul of Tarsus. Chapter 10 is Peter in the house of Cornelius. And chapter 19 describes uh, the experience of the 12 disciples with Paul at Ephesus. Last little bit of scripture I want to talk about is Luke chapter 11 and verse 13. We referenced this one as well last week, but this is the verse that says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your, will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So we can see uh, in the book of Acts five specific instances. And then it looks like this verse in Luke chapter 11 is referencing the Holy Spirit in the same way. That if you would ask the Father for the Holy Spirit that he would give him to you. We know that we get the Holy Spirit if we would confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts God raised him from the dead. So I think that this one is also referencing that other, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, but it doesn't say specifically, but I think they're connected. So let's then, based upon reviewing the five different uh, places in the book of Acts where the baptism of the Holy Spirit is described, Let's go ahead and talk about how does, how does it happen for us, and then how do we know that it happens. Well, the first thing I did was look for a pattern. And if you see on the slide, if you've actually pulled up the notes, you can see the slide with the different examples, Pentecost, Samaria, Saul, Cornelius, and the disciples at Ephesus. And one thing that appears to be consistent every single time is that they all were prior to receiving the baptism. They were all believers already. So you can't get this baptism in the Holy Spirit without having first received Christ as Lord and Savior. In the case of the house of Cornelius, it, it looks like it basically happened at almost exactly the same time because Peter was still sharing the gospel and literally they began to speak in other tongues and, and that's how Peter knew that they'd been baptized in the Holy Spirit. So one thing that's consistent someone has to be a believer before they would ever receive this second baptism or this baptism in the Holy Spirit. Then the next thing I looked at is, were they baptized? Is it a requirement that you would actually be baptized in water prior to? And it looks like that there isn't a pattern there. At the day of Pentecost, I think we could assume that the 120, having, having been with Jesus for um, some or all of his three-year ministry, would likely have all been water baptized as he 
uh, taught the importance of baptism. So I'm making an assumption, but I believe that they were baptized. The believers, the new believers in Samaria, the Bible specifically says that they uh, had been baptized. Saul had not been baptized. The people at the house of Cornelius, it says specifically that they got baptized after speaking in other tongues. And the uh, disciples at Ephesus had not yet been baptized in water. So no pattern relative to baptizing in water that seems to uh, make a difference. So the next thing I wondered is how about hands being laid on people because it mentions that they laid their hands on them. And again, there seems to be no set pattern here either. On the day of Pentecost, there's no indication that anybody was laying hands on anybody else. They were waiting for the promise of the Father and the Holy Spirit just descended upon them and they saw the tongues of fire and began to speak in other tongues. But it doesn't indicate that anybody had laid hands on them. In Samaria and with Saul and with the disciples at, at Ephesus, it says specifically that the uh, they, someone had laid hands on them that they would receive this baptism. But the house of Cornelius, again, doesn't look like there was any hands laid on. So no pattern uh, that we can see there. And then the third thing that's interesting is, what's the evidence? You know, we're a part of the Assemblies of God Fellowship. Assemblies of God places great importance on the baptism of the Holy Spirit as uh, very critical for the believer. They also, as part of that doctrine, say that the initial evidence of that having happened is speaking in other tongues. Um, biblically, I'm not sure that I would be ready to say that it, there's an absolute correlation, but it seems like there's a very, very strong correlation, and that's how they connect those two dots. Uh, at the day of Pentecost, they spoke in other tongues. The house of Cornelius spoke in other tongues, and the 12 disciples at Ephesus spoke in other tongues immediately upon receiving this baptism of the Holy Spirit. It, the... Um, New believers in Samaria, it does not reference that they spoke in other tongues, but something happened. Something very visible happened because this guy Simon, it says immediately after they were prayed for that having seen that they received the Holy Spirit. So there was some perceptible to your natural perception, your eyes and your ears, that this guy was able to see that um, something had happened. There's no other indication of anything but tongues, so you could uh, argue that it was likely speaking in other tongues that happened in Samaria, although it's not specific. And then with Saul, uh, it again doesn't reference any physical manifestation, anything that happened to him specifically, other than he immediately began to witness the gospel. But later in Scripture, uh, in 1 Corinthians, where Paul is teaching on spiritual gifts, he makes the comment, He's glad that he speaks in tongues more than any of them. So he makes some pretty strong references to tongues, um, but there's nothing specifically. So again, looking for specific patterns, it looks like, as with many things, that God doesn't give you a pattern for exactly if you do A, B, and C, D will be the result. But those are the specifics of each one of those instances, which are the five instances in the Bible that we see people actually being baptized. Um, no pattern. So let's go on now and answer those two specific questions. After uh, reviewing the scripture, then question number five of the six would be, how do I receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, we did see from all five of those instances that each and every one of them, that people were already born-again Christians. 
they had that initial indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They had confessed with their mouth and believed in their heart, Jesus is Lord and Savior. So uh, for sure, to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit, you need to already have been a believer in Jesus Christ. Second way that you might receive this baptism is based upon the scriptures in Luke eleven thirteen that say, how much more would your Father in Heaven give the, of the Holy Spirit if you would just ask Him? So I think if, if it's safe to connect the Luke 11 scripture with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that you could ask God, that you could pray and you could ask the Lord to be baptized in His Spirit, that second baptism. Um, I did that personally. I was told by uh, people that had been Christians much longer than me fairly early in my walk that uh, I needed to speak in tongues. So I was praying and praying and praying to speak in tongues. I didn't understand that tongues were the fruit of the baptism versus the specific thing that I would ask for. And I probably prayed for at least two years before any evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, in my case, speaking in other tongues, actually happened. So... You can ask and you can believe by faith because scripture says that if you ask him, he would be happy to give it to you. That would be the second way that you may receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Third, you could have somebody lay hands on you and ask for that gift on your behalf. So we saw in Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 9, and Acts chapter 19, those three specific instances where um, I believe every time it was the apostles... No, it wasn't. Ananias laid hands on uh, Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, and Ananias was not an apostle. So a Christian had laid hands on these people and prayed that they would receive the baptism. And we see again in Acts 8, 9, and 19 that they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit at the laying on of hands. So you could have somebody do that. You could have someone pray for you, just like we did... um, the first Sunday of this message where people came forward that desired to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, we laid hands on them and prayed that God would bring that to them. And then the fourth way is that literally God could divinely baptize you just because he wants to. That's what appears to have happened in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 10 where the apostles and the disciples were waiting at the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit just divinely dropped on them. They knew that they were to wait for the promise of the Father. They didn't specifically know, it doesn't appear at least from Scripture, what that was going to look like. And just divinely when he chose, God came by way of his Spirit, and they were baptized. In Acts chapter 10, in the house of Cornelius, it's very similar. Peter comes, they invite him to come, they send people for him. Neither of them really knows why. And as Peter's sharing the gospel... Uh, just divinely, and I think it's safe to assume because it says that the the circumcised, the uh, Jewish Christians that were there with Peter were amazed when they saw the Gentiles, Cornelius and his house, being baptized in the Holy Spirit. So I don't think that Peter or the rest of his party had any sense that um, that was the outcome of what they were there for because they were amazed when it actually happened. And we had that actually happen at our church a few weeks ago. You know Krista, um, one of the singers in the worship band. One of our days when we were praying together as a church community uh, towards the end of the service, um, she was just up on the the stage and just kind of, um, gosh, I don't even know how to describe it, 
just uh, loving Jesus as they were kind of worshiping and leading us as we were kind of uh, just soaking in the presence of the Lord. And she began to speak in other tongues. And it took her uh, a few minutes to realize what was happening. And then another moment of kind of bewilderment, like, wow, what just happened? And then, oh my gosh, you know, I'm speaking in tongues. So literally, just because he wanted to, divinely God in his sovereignty just decided that it was uh, Christa's time and she just began to speak in other tongues. Didn't ask for it, wasn't expecting it. It just came. Very beautiful. Um, all right, so question number five. That looks like four ways biblically that we can see that you may uh, receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. First, got to be born again. Second, you could ask God and believe based upon the scriptures in Luke 11, verse 13. Third, you could have somebody lay hands on you and pray that you receive it. That would be consistent with Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 9, and Acts chapter 19. And then fourth, uh, like we saw in Acts 2 and Acts 10, and with Krista, the Holy Spirit could just come based upon God decides it's your time and you get it. I think you probably would have to have some willingness to receive. I'm not sure that you would receive that baptism of the Holy Spirit if you were unwilling. And the only reason I say that is there are uh, denominations within Christianity today, um, for example, that don't believe that tongues was, is for now, that, that that might have been only for the apostolic time uh, back you know, early, early, early in the history of the church for a specific purpose. And because they don't necessarily have the faith to believe, maybe God doesn't give them that gift. I have heard really interesting stories about um, people in other denominations, mostly I think Baptist, maybe two or three different stories where um, the Holy Spirit was really moving on a person that didn't necessarily have any teaching along those lines and sometimes even said, okay, you know, Lord, I, I'm willing to move with you here. I don't understand it, but I draw the line of tongues. I am not speaking in tongues. And you know that's the kiss of death, right? When you tell God, absolutely no, I'm not going to do something that you're likely that probably going to happen. But anyway, two or three different instances, very credible people that I've heard talk about actually um, being baptized in the Holy Spirit and just literally having tongues bubble up out of them when for most of their lives, or all of their lives up to that point maybe, they would have never believed that that was possible. So it's interesting how God works. But those are the ways we see in Scripture that you could uh, likely receive that, the baptism, the promise of the Father. So then question number six, how do I know if I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Again, scripturally, it looks like there's probably three different ways that you would know that. The first would be that you would speak in other tongues. Acts 2, Acts 10, and Acts 19 indicates that as those folks were baptized in the Holy Spirit, um, the evidence was speaking in other tongues. Also, with the Samaritans, my presumption would be that they spoke in other tongues, but the Bible doesn't specifically say, so I'm not sure that you can draw a hard line. Maybe a, a, a very thick dotted line to that conclusion, but not a solid line because it's not specific. Second way you might know that you're baptized in the Holy Spirit is by faith because you asked. Again, Luke eleven thirteen. if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your, will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? 
So this is Jesus speaking, and it seems to be pretty obvious that if you asked for the Holy Spirit as a gift, your Father would give it to you. So you could say, Father, in the name of my Lord Jesus, I'm asking that you would give me this promise that you promised the early disciples and apostles, this baptism in the Holy Spirit. And maybe even in the absence of any immediate evidence, you could assume that you got it because by faith you believe it was his will for you to have it if you would ask, and you did. So that would be answer number two. Answer number three I would base on the scripture from Jesus that said, go and wait, receive the promise of the Father that you might be my witness um, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even the remotest parts of the earth. So um, there is something that you would get that would allow you to be empowered to witness the good news of the kingdom um, more so than if you didn't have that baptism in the Holy Spirit. I think also, I don't know if I quoted it earlier, but one of the scriptures says that you will receive power. Yeah, it's the same one. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses off into all these other places. So there is some empowered ability to witness. And if you look at Paul as an example, and some of the statements that he made, uh, both of the ones that I'll reference are in 1 Corinthians that speak to witnessing and power. In chapter 2, verses 2 through 5 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So Paul is talking to the church in Corinth. He had established the church there. They had fallen into some um, pretty serious problems, and he's writing this letter back uh, to reinforce the message that he gave them, the true gospel of Jesus, and um, is, is telling them that the witness for Christ is not in uh, fancy words or somebody's powerful oratory abilities. It's in the demonstration of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and of power, such that people's faith would not rest on the wisdom of a man, but truly on the power of God. So if you see in your life this power that that would be demonstrated um, in your witness, this, the power of the Holy Spirit, then you would have an indication that you had been baptized in the Holy Spirit. A second uh, verse to that same end would be in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 19 and 20. Paul says here, But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. So again, there's others that have followed Paul into the church at Corinth, and, and they're preaching something other than the gospel message. They're, um, they're uh, questioning his authority as an apostle, and they're, they're speaking uh, a twisted gospel. So Paul says, when I come back, if God wills, I'm going to find these guys, and I'm not going to listen to what they say. I'm going to see their power. Because if they're truly um, apostles, if they're truly people that are preaching the kingdom of God, it'll come in power. 
in true power of the Holy Spirit, not just in eloquent words. So the third way that you would uh, likely be able to tell if you've had that Holy Spirit baptism is whether or not the power of the Holy Spirit is manifest in your life, um, and specifically to witness the gospel in power, not just in words. So that's the answers to questions number five and number six. I think it leaves us with a few more questions that we need to answer, um, but we'll do that in a, in a future Sunday morning uh, message where we're going to talk about tongues. I don't want us to leave uh, tongues just hanging out there because it seems to be a very divisive topic within the church. There are um, those who, from arrogance, I think, at least reading historically, and, and, and this is kind of our stream of Christianity, the Pentecostal stream that has really used tongues as a way to try to elevate themselves above other Christians, um, not the right thing to do. And then I think as a result of that, and as a result of teaching that would tell them that, you know, tongues is not for today and, and whatnot, that, that it would create this kind of um, boiling point where, where tongues isn't talked about because it creates um, controversy and arguing. But tongues is important. It's a, it's a gift from God. It's a manifestation of the Holy Spirit, and we should talk about it. So we'll close this particular um, topic of the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, with a discussion on tongues. Uh, what is it? Is it really the um, only initial evidence of that baptism having had happened? But ultimately, we want to accomplish three things. The first is that we would have a good understanding so hopefully if you go back and you review the information in the scriptures from last week and then this most current Sunday and you look at them in their context, and again, I would really strongly suggest you read the whole book of Acts, but specifically read around these five instances and, and not just the specific scriptures, but read the scriptures before and the scriptures after so you get the full context of what the Lord is trying to speak to us through them. Uh, that you would have an understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and that that better understanding would lead you to a desire to actually be baptized in the Holy Spirit, that you would be fully empowered to witness the good news of the kingdom of heaven, of the gospel that Jesus Christ came to share with all of the world so that none would be lost and all would come to repentance and ultimately would have the opportunity to spend eternity in heaven that true gospel of what is the narrow road and the small gate that leads to life. The third objective then would be that everyone that would desire would actually receive the baptism. And it certainly seems that everyone that desires will receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. God wouldn't lay it out there um, for some, or he hasn't laid it out there for some. The scripture teaches us that it's for everybody. And um, you can revisit those scriptures from last week's message. Uh, they'll be in the notes together for the two weeks on the website. So hopefully this has been informative to you. Hopefully uh, as we've been praying that if you haven't been baptized yet in the Holy Spirit that, that this teaching will cause that fire to burn a little hotter inside of you and that you'll ask whether God would give it to you divinely, whether someone would lay hands on you or um, however he would give you that baptism that you would strongly desire to have it because it's from him, it's for you, it's for all believers, and it's important. So with that, we'll let you go. Have a great rest of your week.
Um, we love you very much, and we can't wait to see you again on Sunday. God bless you all.